if you'll turn in your Bibles this morning to Philippians chapter 3, uh, that will be our destination. Philippians in the third chapter. Now in the context of this letter, I want you to remember that Paul is writing from prison. And he's writing this letter to encourage the Philippian church. The Philippian church has been through a lot. They've had some problems like every church does. And Paul has written to them concerning these things. But if you want to remember the main theme of the book of Philippians is joy. Uh, the first chapter is all about Jesus. How Jesus is the, the single focus that we ought to have as believers. And if he is the first focus, then that's the beginning of joy. J. J stands for joy. And then chapter 2 talks about others. And they, that's the key word in the second chapter. Others. So if Jesus is first, others are second, and we make ourselves last, what Paul says is this is really the way to experience true joy. And if you think about it, some of the most religious people in the days of Jesus, uh, a lawyer actually came and asked Jesus, he said, what's the most important commandment? If I'm going to focus my time and attention on one commandment, what should it be? Now, he's a typical guy, right? We, we don't like to divide our attentions very well. We're not very good at that, I will say. We're not multitaskers. He goes, why don't you simplify this for me? In the Old Testament, there was what they believed to be 613 commandments. We focus on the top 10 because, I mean, we want to simplify things. But Jesus answered him and he said, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And then he said the second one is like it. And it's really the same thing. He says, You shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. So this is, he said, Upon these two commandments hang all of the law and the prophets. This is everything. The first four commandments in the top ten were between man and God. And when our relationship is right between us and God, then we have the horizontal will all be fixed. That our relationship with other people will be right. And so Paul is explaining to this, this to them in practical ways. But here in chapter 3, we see that Paul spends some time doing kind of a, what we would call an autobiography. Where someone would write down basically their life, explain it to someone from their own perspective. A biography is different. It's somebody else writes it about you. But an autobiography is a, a book that you would write about yourself and explain to people kind of where you've been, what you're doing now, and what you see in the future. So Paul, in the verse 11 verses, talks about his past. And we see Paul as an accountant in the first 11 verses. He says, the things that I had in my previous light, I accounted them as rubbish, so that I could gain Christ. He says, the things that I saw from before that I tried to attain on my own, they were not worth anything to me when I found out what Christ had done. So I accounted them as really as being bankrupt. And instead, I take on what God has imputed or deposited into my account, his righteousness, his perfection, everything that he has done. I want to gain that so I give up the past. And so that's what he said. He says, rejoice in the Lord for to me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. And he tells them to beware of dogs, evil workers, and the mutilation. He was talking about the Judaizers who came in and said, yeah, you can trust Jesus, but you also need to be circumcised. You also need to follow the law. You also need to do these religious works. 
And so what Paul said, don't let people rob you of the simplicity that is found in a, a relationship with Christ that saves. We don't have to add any works to what Jesus has already done. Verse 3 says, For we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. Don't have any confidence in what you can do on your own. Don't have any confidence in your trying to stack up good works versus your bad works. He says none of that means anything. And then he goes on to explain, trust me because I tried this. Paul's not speaking from an ivory tower. He's speaking from experience. So he says there in verse 4, though I also could actually have confidence in the flesh. If you looked at the law, he says, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, then I could even more than they would. He says, I was born, I was circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel. I was a descendant of Abraham. Circumcised on the eighth day means he, from his very birth, his parents made sure to follow all the rules that God set forth for Israel. And then he says, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law, I was a Pharisee. We talked about last week how the Bible in the New Testament, if you see Pharisees, you don't see a positive thing. You see someone that Jesus called hypocrites. But a Pharisee wasn't originally meant to be that way. A Pharisee was someone who was considering themselves defense to the law. They didn't come up with extra rules so they could show themselves to be more holy originally. They came up with more rules because it was like um, if you have a property line and you bury one of those little invisible fences for your dog, you don't bury it right next to the road. You bury it a few feet off so that when they cross that line, there will be a little bit of gray area that they don't have to worry about getting hit by a car. You want there to be kind of a moat in between it, a safe spot. If they cross over it and take a little bit to turn back, you want there to be some breathing room. Uh, the same idea was when they would actually lash somebody or they would beat them with a whip of cords and punish them in Israel. They would never do 40. They were allowed to give 40. But so that they wouldn't transgress the law, they would only give them 39. So they wouldn't push the boundary. And so in the same way, the Pharisees, they, they were set up as a fence for the law. They wanted to have such rules and such discipline so that if they were to break their own rules, they wouldn't be breaking the law of God. There would be a safe spot in between. And so Paul says, concerning zeal for the law, I was a Pharisee. And concerning zeal, persecuting the church, he loved the Lord so much that he persecuted the church because he thought Jesus was a blasphemer. He thought that someone that comes along and forgives sins, he thought that someone that comes along and claims to be God has to be in blasphemy. So he persecuted anyone who followed Jesus, who he thought to be a, a false prophet. Now we know that God met with him on the road to Damascus. Jesus himself said, why are you persecuting me? He wasn't just persecuting people, he was persecuting Jesus himself. Jesus took it personal, so he he went and saw Paul about this. So God changed the, the heart of Paul by confronting him about his religious zeal that actually ended up being sin. But then in verse 7, he says, But the things that were gained to me, these things that I counted as important, my priorities, I've counted them loss for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. He wanted to know Christ. He wanted to know him personally. We spent a few minutes about that last week where 
I said, it's not that he wanted to know about Christ. He counted those things lost, not so he could know more about Christ. He counted them lost. He, he dumped them in the hamper. He got rid of them because he wanted to know Christ personally. Not about him, but he wanted to know him. And so because of that, he counted everything else as a loss, as rubbish, it says. And the, the idea of the word rubbish there actually means the bathtub ring. The thing that you don't want anybody to see. It's kind of gross, and so you don't, you know, nobody talks about it, but it's something that you, everyone has to clean from their house. And so what do we do with that thing? We clean it up, we cover it up, we do whatever we can. But Paul says, I got rid of it. I didn't just scrub the bathtub ring, I tossed the tub. I didn't want there to even be a possibility of me trying to go back to my own righteous works that in the eyes of God, at their very best, were a nasty bathtub ring. And so Paul says, I got rid of it. But then he goes on to say this, and I think it's important. We're going to look at Paul in this next section. We saw Paul the, the accountant in verse 1 through 11. And then in verse uh, 12 through 16, we're going to see him as an athlete. Now, you guys are going to love this because I'm so good at athlete analogies. But Paul loved the athletic games. He loved the Olympics. He loved them. He writes so many times. If you guys like sports and you don't like Paul, I don't get it. Because he writes about sports all the time. He uses Now, it's lost in translation because he used Greek. So it's all Greek to us, right? But to Paul, he would use these words that we kind of lose what they meant. They were specific words. They were sports words. And so we're going to see some of those today. But Paul looks at his past in verse 1 through 11. He looks at his present in verse 12 through 16. And then 17 through 21, he looks at the future. He lives for the future. And so we see him as an accountant. Then we see him as an athlete this week. And then the next time we talk about this, which is going to be in several weeks after um, we go through Easter, we're going to look at Paul as living in this world as though he were an alien. So (laughs) that'll be interesting. But the essentials we're going to look at today are the essentials for winning the race. Now, I don't know about you guys, but baseball season's starting. Um, we've got some other sports that are in their heyday right now. We've got March Madness going on. But we think about games, or we think about sports, we think about the actual game day. But you guys all know that sports, if it's just about the game day, the games would not even be any good. It's about practice. It's about preparation. It's about determination. It's about discipline. If a person isn't... Uh, dissatisfied with how good they play, they don't ever get any better. They kind of stop, right? If a person isn't devoted to preparing for that game, that you have to give up certain things so that you can devote time to playing your sport. If a person doesn't have direction, someone that they can follow that's better than them, somebody that they can try to attain to their, go- their level of play, then they don't get any better. And if they're not determined or they don't have any discipline, you know that they're not going to be a good athlete. You can have natural gifting, but even those that are naturally gifted at sports, they still practice. Guarantee Michael Jordan still went to practice. Even though he could dunk and change directions in the air somehow, he went to practice because working together with his team, he wanted to win. And so in the same way, many times believers are all about game day, but they don't do any preparation. And so today we're going to look at the essentials for winning the race for receiving the promised reward. But what I want you to keep in mind as we read these verses, Paul's not talking about receiving salvation. 
That's a misnomer. That's a misunderstanding. Paul's talking about receiving rewards for working out our salvation with fear and trembling. We just read in um, chapter 2, Paul had actually written something that was kind of interesting. And I can't remember where it's at. Oh, there it is. Chapter 2, verse 13. Well, verse 12. He says, My beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, he says this, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Work it out. Work out your salvation. And then he says, For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. So he gives us this conundrum, this ironic statement. It's called jumbo shrimp. You know, it's kind of this oxymoron. You know, who is it that works in me to change my life and to save me? Well, it's Christ. He paid it all, right? We can't do anything to add to that. But but then he says here, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So I've got a responsibility. But then he says, but it's God who works in you to will and to do for his good pleasure. So I have the responsibility to work. And at the same time, I have to work knowing that it's him who's going to work through me. Does that make sense? So Paul here, when he says that I want to attain the goal, the the prize, I want to win the race, he's not saying salvation. God already did that. But as we work out our salvation, as we prepare for the day of adversity, we know that God is preparing us. I prepare, but God's the one preparing me, if that makes sense. So do I need to do anything for my salvation? Not to earn it, but to work it out, to bring it through to its ultimate fruition, to bring it through to maturity, just like you would do for a, a garden you plant. You plant plants in there, you put the seeds in the ground, and you know that God is the one that brings the increase. A farmer goes out, he prepares the field, he throws out the seed, he goes to bed at night, he gets up the next morning, he goes to bed at night, he gets up the next morning, he does all these things in the meantime, but who makes the seed grow? Can you and I do anything to make a seed actually germinate and produce this little plant that grows out of it? No, God does that, but we can produce the right conditions. We can prepare the soil, we can fertilize, we can make sure it gets enough water and nutrients. So those are all the things that we do, but God gives life. And so we have a responsibility in everything that we do. God's given us salvation. He has given us new life. No man can see the Father unless he's been born again, right? How does he do it? Is it something you and I do? No, we don't give the seed of life. We don't produce that life within us. We were born dead in our trespasses and sins, but God has made us born again. But we also have a a responsibility, just like we do for planting and harvesting, to give the right conditions for us to bloom and to grow and to produce fruit. And many times we go, God saved me, so I'll just keep doing what I do. But God always gives us a responsibility. Work it out. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You've made the team... Now show up for practice, right? And so here we are in chapter 3, and I'm finally getting to the passage. In verse 12, he says, Not that I already have attained or am already perfected, but he says, I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid a hold of for me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, Forgetting those things which are behind 
and I reach forward to those things which are ahead. I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He says, therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this mind. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule. Let us be of the same mind. And so in this sports analogy he's giving, he says, I haven't already attained. He's not saying, hey, I'm there, so you guys come meet me where I'm at. Because that would be kind of discouraging. Like, you know, Michael Jordan shows up and he says, okay, I dunked, now you do it. And he's not saying that. He's saying, I haven't already attained. I've not arrived yet. I'm not in the Hall of Fame. If you look at Hebrews chapter 11 and you see the, the Hall of Faith, that's the Hall of Fame of the Bible, you'll notice that every one of those people has died. They're not alive anymore. So we haven't arrived until we are face-to-face with Jesus and we are like him. He's continuing to transform us to be more and more like him. So in order to win the race and to receive the promised reward, did you know there's rewards for us doing what God's called us to do? He saves us. He changes us. He produces fruit from our life. He gives us faith to obey his commands. And then he rewards us even though he did it all. Isn't that crazy? It's a participation reward. Except we do have to participate. We have to show up. We have to prepare. So one of the ways that we, one of the essentials for learning to win the race and to to being fruitful for the Lord is actually to have a sanctified dissatisfaction for where I'm at right now. If you are here today and you are dissatisfied with where you are at with your walk with the Lord, you're in a good spot. You should be dissatisfied because you haven't arrived yet. You're not perfect. You're under construction, and that's good because the day you stop working, the day you stop letting the Lord work on you is the day that you, you should be very, very afraid. It should be a red flag. If you're satisfied with where you are at with your walk with the Lord, beware because you're in a dangerous spot. There's no neutral in the Christian life. The minute It's like... I think of this because I always watch these little videos on YouTube. They got the clips called Jeep Freaks. And they have these Jeeps that are like doing these crazy things. And you always watch them. And as soon as the guy lets off the gas, it's always bad. As he's climbing a rock in Moab or if he's going through a mud hole, as soon as he lets off, he's done. He's stuck. He's sunk. You know, that Jeep that he loves and keeps working on and putting all the money into, it's just a boat anchor now. It's stuck in the water or it's crashed on its, you know. But the idea is, is as Christians, God is the one continuing to push us upward toward the higher calling of being like Jesus. Our goal is not to be better than the Christian that we know that's farther along than us. If it is, at one point or another, we're going to get there and we'll get to destination sickness. We'll, we'll be there and we'll be like, this is it, you know. And we won't be like Jesus yet because they're going to be another human being. But if our goal is to be like Jesus, then our work is not complete until we breathe our last breath. And then, so verse 12 through 13, we need to have a dissatisfaction. Paul wrote, Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ has also laid a hold of for me. 
He says, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing that I do, I forget the things which are behind and I reach forward to the things which are ahead. So think about this in the context of who is writing it. That's important. Paul. Paul has been walking with Jesus for 30 years. 30 years. The apostle Paul, he didn't at this point go, you know, I'm an apostle, I've arrived, you know, I've even gone to prison for my faith, here I am, look at me. He said, I haven't already apprehended what God has for me, I'm not done yet, the race isn't over. And he looks at it like that, it's not a sprint, the Christian life is not a sprint, it's a long distance run. And if you've ever run long distance, you know that you've got to conserve your energy, but you also got to leave it all out there. And there's a fine balance before that. And when you get to that tape at the end and you run through, you want to make sure you don't have anything left. Otherwise, you're going to regret it for the next few weeks before your next race. That's how it goes every time. And so Paul says, I've not arrived yet. And then he says, here's what I do. I don't consider myself to have arrived, but one thing I do. Notice he says that. One thing I do. See, Paul has a singular focus for his life. Singular. He's going in one direction. And because of that, he's devoted to that thing. And I think sometimes, maybe this is not you guys, but I know for me, I try to spread myself in so many different directions that I don't do anything right. I can't complete anything. I'm like that with projects. I've got lots of ideas for what I want to do, and I get them all started, but I don't finish anything. Actually, I'm not like that at all. I get one thing started, I don't get it finished, then I'm frustrated, and I never even get to the other part of the list. But if we can focus on one thing, put all our resources in that direction, many times what you'll find is you'll actually be a lot happier. I am so frustrated when I can't finish something. But if I have one goal in mind as I'm working on it, and I get it done, then I can move on to the next. It's like trying to eat an elephant, which I would not recommend. It's kind of tough probably. But the idea is you eat it one bite at a time. And, and so as we look at following Jesus and trying to please him, he says, Paul writes here, he says, one thing I do, I forget those things which are behind me. And he's referring to verse 1 through 11. He could live and regret his whole life. And I've heard Christians this way. They have so many regrets, they can't get past it. They have not recognized that Jesus doesn't even remember these things against you anymore. Jesus doesn't hold your past against you. When you repent of your sin, you say, I want to follow Jesus and trust him for my salvation. Guess what? He means it. 1 Corinthians 13, love keeps no record of wrong. He means that. We don't know anybody that's like that. I guarantee it. Even the most holy person you know remembers what you did in 1979. And they, they remember it, and they hold it against you. But the reality is, is that Jesus chooses to forget, to remember no more our sins. That's awesome, because I don't even forget them. So what does he mean by this? He says, I choose to forget the things that are in the past. Well, he's not saying we do some sort of hypnotism, so we forget, because we always remember those things, right? What he's saying here is, I no longer let those things that have happened in the past influence what I'm doing now and what I'm going to do. I, he's breaking the power of the past by living for the future. 
We don't live anymore for the, so many people live for the past. Do you ever watch Napoleon Dynamite? <laughs> Sorry. Anybody, you guys seen, okay. Napoleon Dynamite, there's this wonderful character in there, Uncle Rico. Uncle Rico used to be second string or probably fourth string quarterback. I remember back in the day, I could throw a football over them hills, you know. He said, back in 81, if coach would have put me in, I'd be an all-star quarterback in the NFL. You know, he's just got this, he's so caught up with the past, he can't move forward. And Paul says, you know what, I'm going to look at myself realistically. Coach didn't put me in because I wasn't a good player. And so I had to be humbled and I had to be changed. And now I figured out I'm not even made for football. I'm made to follow Jesus, you know. And, and Paul was a missionary. He wasn't meant to be a religious leader or a leader of the Sanhedrin. He was supposed to go out and start churches. He was, he, that's what, specifically what he was meant for. I know so many people that are locked up in their Christian life right now. A good buddy of mine, he, he's so locked up in, if I wouldn't have went straight into the workforce and I'd have went off to college and then I would have done this and could have, would have, should have, didn't, then maybe I could be something better than I am right now. But every time I see him, I'm like, you know what? Quit or realize this is what you were made for. And you know what? He's a really good tool grinder. Better than any guy in his department. And if you would embrace that, and find joy in it, and do it to please Jesus. The paycheck doesn't matter. The vacation time doesn't matter. The, the oil on all your clothes and smelling like cutting oil wouldn't matter because it, that's not his goal. My goal is not to be a good engineer so much as it is to be a good engineer for Jesus. And if I can do that, then I can experience joy in it. Then what I'm doing has eternal implications. The way that I carry myself at work can lead someone else to Jesus. And so Paul says, I don't let the things of the past rule over my life anymore. Let go of the past. Jesus has forgiven you. And if he hasn't, then repent, and he will. You know, I think sometimes we overcomplicate forgiveness. How do you get forgiveness? You ask for it. You don't have it because you don't ask for it. And then once you do that, move on. Don't be ashamed. Embrace the thing. God's going to use these past things that have chained you down for years to change you and make you who you are today in Him. And then he says, after he says, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, he says this in verse 14, I press toward the goal for this reason, that I may obtain the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He wanted to obtain rewards. We all have the opportunity to obtain rewards for God's kingdom. He presses on. He follows after is the idea. Pressing on means like when you're running a race and you're worn out, you lean forward. And Warren Wearsby, the guy that I read, actually said that he believes Paul was talking about a chariot race. And in a chariot race, you're not buckled in. There's no safety harness. You wouldn't want to tie yourself to that thing. It's going to go down. So you're racing in this chariot. The horses are going as fast as they can. And you're trying to look ahead to see if anybody's in front of you so you can pass. But chariot racers, if they were to look back even for a few seconds and don't direct the horses where they need to go, could end up crashing into another chariot racer. So sometimes we're so focused behind us even for a couple of seconds that it means that we're going to wreck. 
And Jesus wants us to focus forward. And then on top of that, he wants us to press forward. It means to reach out and try to grasp. It's like the runner at the end of a race when he's run, 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 run for however long. He gets towards the tape and all of a sudden he's been running as hard as he can, but he wants to get every edge that he can towards that tape. Whoever's first wins, right? You guys have seen cars, right? Anybody on here seen cars? You know? Lightning McQueen, he's like spinning his wheels, but he sticks his tongue out, Michael Jordan style. And then he ends up tying with the other two racers. And I've seen guys at cross country and and in sprinting races, they are pushing their chests out. They're leaning forward. They're doing everything they can to just get slightly ahead of the guy that's next to them so they can win, so they can obtain the, the crown. But what he's saying here is, as much as I enjoy that and as much as i admire that even when you would win a crown or the thing they would place over your neck the wreath with all the flowers on it it fades it doesn't last even if it's a metal or a it it rusts and so he says i'm reaching forward i'm pressing ahead for the upward call in god i'm doing it to obtain a crown that will never fade never and i wish And sometimes I get so upset because I see so many people putting so much time and effort into something that's probably never going to mean anything for eternity. And yet we put so much effort and resources and time and devotion to something that we don't even do for Christ. And then when it comes to do something for the Lord, it could even be those sports. It could be serving in some way. I don't have time. I don't have the energy. I don't have the resources. And it's all because we spend it on stuff that won't last for eternity. And in the meantime, we we have nothing left to spend investing in the kingdom of God. And so Paul says, if you want to have joy, if you want to have something that lasts, then press on like I am. He says, I press toward the goal for the prize. And that prize is the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So he says, therefore, anytime that uh, the Bible says, therefore, look in the verses before it, he's drawing a conclusion. See what it's there for. He says, therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this mind. The idea is the attitude. Have this attitude. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, Let us walk by the same rule. Let us be of the same mind. He wants us to have discipline. He wants us to be disciplined. And the idea is that as followers of Jesus, he wants us to be disciples. And the root word of disciple is just that. It's discipline. We, We do everything we can to prepare. We do everything that we can to be where we're supposed to be, when we're supposed to be there. It's kind of like some of these guys that, you know, that are playing baseball right now. You know, I want to play baseball. What do you got to do? Show up for practice or you don't play. We can be disqualified. Did you know that as Christians? Not disqualified like lose your salvation. We can actually be disqualified from rewards for what we do on earth. It's interesting to me because in the Isthmian Games and in the the, the Olympics, when they all were going on in Paul's day, the only thing you had to do to play in the games was, number one, to be a Roman citizen. And number two, to win a reward, you had to play by the rules. Now, we all know this. We've played sports. We know that there's rules for how you play. 
you play wrong, you don't get to win. If you cheat, if you cut a corner in some way, if you use performance-enhancing drugs, you don't get to have your title anymore. It doesn't mean anything. And in the same way, we could run this race called the Christian life in a way that we can't be rewarded for it because we haven't run it according to the rules. We haven't played according to God's ways. And so he says, as many as are mature have this same attitude. If in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Are we determined to press on towards the higher calling in God? For each one of us, that will look different. You know, uh, my pressing on looks different than Ronnie's will. You know, he works with the, the public. He, he does insurance. I know nothing about that. My calling looks different than his. My calling looks different than yours. Each one of us have a different lane that we have to run in, but we have to run according to the rules. Otherwise, we're disqualified from winning the crown. Now, the first qualification was to be a citizen of Rome. We're already citizens of the kingdom if we are in Christ. We've repented of our sins. If we've decided to be disciples of Jesus and we're following him, then we're already citizens. But we can rob ourselves of rewards by how we compete. We're not competing against each other, by the way. We're competing for the glory of God. And when those crowns, those wreaths, those eternal rewards are given to us, I I have to say that I want them. And it's not so that I can say, hey, check out my trophy room, Jesus. It's because on the day that we see him face to face, we will be rewarded with crowns and we will have the opportunity to give them to Jesus. (laughs) I wish I had something to give to the Lord to say thank you. You can Produce fruit, be faithful, and let him live through you. And as you do, he's going to reward you for it, and then you'll have something to give him. That's worship. That's the only way we get to worship in heaven. We get to give him that which he gave us the faith to reach forward and obtain. I don't know about you guys, but I don't want my life to be wasted on things that won't last. I want my life to mean something. keep telling my children, God has big plans for you big plans and he wants to use you for something that means way more than this few years we have in this life and the question is are we willing to spend ourselves to do so and the question is do we realize how much joy it will give you when you'll do that so let's pray